Friends, would you open your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, chapter 44? We'll be reading from God's Word, from verse 6 to the end of the chapter. If you did not bring a Bible with you this morning, we encourage you to grab a Bible provided in the chairs in front of you. You may find this passage on page number 604 in the few Bibles. As we are continuing our way through the book of Isaiah, as you turn there, I wonder if you, I wonder how you react when around us, when in our society, bad things, injustices are being exposed, when they come to light. Sometimes it grieves us to hear, sometimes it may be shocking to hear what has been going on, but there's also a sense of, of joy that the wrongdoers have been exposed And wrongdoing is coming to light. Exposing wrongdoing may be shocking, but at the same time, we find a sense of of delight to know that that which is wrong is finally exposed to the light and able to be put off. They're able to come to an end. In some way, my friends, this morning we are looking at an exposure of something that is deeply wrong. It's... It's not a category that we think about often. What is being exposed may not feel wrong to us often. But the Bible calls it wrong. It's the exposure of idolatry. This morning we will look at the passage from the book of Isaiah in which God exposes idolatry. Here's the word of the Lord for us this morning. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, The Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? There is no rock. I know not any. All who fashion idols are nothing. And the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a God or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry And his strength fails, and he drinks no water, and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into a figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts it down. He cuts down cedars, and he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar. And the rain nourishes it, 
then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it, he takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. He also makes a god, worships it, it. he makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it, he burns in the fire. Over the half, he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it, he makes it into an idol, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. They know not, nor do they discern. For he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. And he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I form you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord, who made all things who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built. And I will raise up the ruins, who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Would you bow in prayer, asking God to bless the preaching of his word for our hearts? Father, your word declares truth that our hearts need to hear. Would you speak this truth to our hearts now and apply it in a way that our idolatries might be exposed, in a way that your truth might free us, in a way that your truth 
might bring redemption to those who are still in bondage. We pray this for the glory of your servant, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, one of the big themes in this passage is a theme of idolatry. What is idolatry? We might think of idolatry as the worship of other gods or the the gods of other religions. In our own city, there are houses of worship in which people gather to worship the many gods of the Hindu religion. We have people who gather to worship the god of Islam. We have people who come to to worship in a a Baha'i temple. The Bible calls the worship of other gods as idolatry. Friends, if if any of you are here this morning, if you're visiting with us this morning and you come from a background of of worshiping other religions or worshiping the god uh, of of other religions, uh, first of all, we're so delighted that you're with us. Welcome. We hope to get to know you. We hope you would come and visit again. We'd love to know more about you. But recognize that the Bible, the God of the Bible, describes the gods of other religions, the other gods, as idolatry and worshiping them as as engaging in an act of idolatry. But idolatry is not limited only to the worship of the gods of the other religions. Idolatry is the worship of anything else other than the one true God. An idol or a god is anything that takes the place of the true God in our lives. Here's how Martin Luther, the great reformer, here's how he defined a god. He says, whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that is your god. Trust and faith of the heart alone makes both God and idol. Here's how another theologian defines a God. A God is anything that one loves, trusts, and serves above all else. Even people who deny the existence of any God still give their lives to some ideals, to some higher purposes. Their lives are still governed by certain passions and pursuits. And whatever those passions, whatever those pursuits, whatever those purposes are that are above anything else, that takes the place of God in their lives, even though they might say they don't believe in any God. Let me give you an example from the Bible that shows that we don't have to have an actual statue or an actual image in order to practice idolatry. The Bible says that greed is idolatry. Several times in the Bible, um, greed is identified as idolatry, and yet people who are greedy don't make statues or physical images that they worship uh, before them. The, The mere love for money is idolatry. The mere love for possessions is an act of worshiping money or possessions. Even though we don't have a a wooden or a stone-made statue, Jesus 
said to his disciples, you can't serve two masters. You will either serve God or money. Idolatry is about who you serve ultimately. It's about what your ultimate purpose is, what you give your life to be governed by. Friends, as we approach the subject of idolatry, this text is not asking us simply to accept with our minds that there is one and only one God. Many of us this morning, I assume, just looking around this room, many of us already accept, at least with our minds, that there is only one and true God. And yet, while our hearts might embrace this good theology, our hearts might quietly and subtly embrace and serve and love other gods. The danger of idolatry is when we give our love, trust, and obedience to someone else while thinking that we worship God. So you might ask yourself this morning, do you struggle with idolatry? Are there things, possessions, people, relationships, dreams, reputation, that you treasure or rely upon above all else more than God? Take some time this morning to examine yourself and, ex- and see whether or not the struggle of idolatry, this danger of idolatry, is luring your own heart as well. As we look at this passage, we might be tempted to say, well, I don't do it the way they did, did it back then. I don't have the statue. I don't have a physical representation. Don't worry about that particular manifestation. Idolatry lures our hearts in subtle ways. And this morning, as we look at this ta- text, as this passage, God exposes idolatry, and he does it by making three points. There's no other God to depend on besides God. The first point that God makes as he exposes idolatry is to state that there's no other God to depend on besides God. Second, idolatry is foolish and dangerous. And thirdly, God calls his people to return to him. Let's look at each of these points and, and see how God unpacks them. The, the first point, there's there are no other gods to depend on besides God. Now, to claim today that there is only one God alienates some people. Especially those who might think that not to allow the existence of other gods seems to be narrow and seems to be old-fashioned and just a thing of the past. That if we are modern people, if we are intelligent people, that we are reasonable people, we got to believe that there, that there are other gods around, and all other gods have an equal footing. Well, friends, I understand the spirit of the, of the postmodern person wanting to allow, wanting to, to give fair treatment to all the other gods, to the gods of the other religions. Yet here, it is the God of the Bible who says, There's no other God besides me. It's not simply we people who make that statement. It is a God of the Bible. Look at verse 6. He says, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Now, to be first 
to declare that he is the first means that there is no prior cause before God. He is self-existent. There is no one else before him. When you look at the very, very beginning, if we could get there, you find God is already there. When, when we look at the second description, I am the last, it means there's nothing that will outlast God. There's nothing that will exist beyond God. The point of these two phrases, I am the first and I am the last, is to say that nothing existed prior to him, nothing, nothing exists beyond him, there is no other God beside him. If this is not enough, this truth is repeated again in verse 8 in the form of a question. God asks, is there a God besides me? God asks, is there a God besides me? Now, he's not asking us. He's asking this question, and he is the one who answers it as well. He says, there's no rock. I know not any. Now, to say that there's no other God besides God is a bold enough statement. To say that the king of Israel and the redeemer of Israel is the only true God is even more shocking. And then if we go to the New Testament and we read that the only true God declares to be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ who became incarnate, the eternal Son who became incarnate, it's even more shocking. It's even more problematic for many today. But notice the image that God uses in this passage to describe himself. When he asks the question, is there a God besides me? We would expect to say, no, there's no other God besides me. But notice what, God, what image God uses to say there's no other God besides me. He says, no, there's no other rock besides me. In other words... God describes himself not simply just as a God. He describes himself as a rock. Now, he's not talking here about a physical rock, but as a picture of the God who is dependable and worthy to be trusted. It's easy for us to say, well, I like to think about God in this way, or I can't believe in a God like that. These statements, statements show that our minds feel open to define God the way we like Him to be. But the God of our imagination, or the God formed in our own minds the way we like Him to be, is not dependable. He is not a rock on which you can trust. Such a God will be as good as dependable as your imagination. Part of idolatry is not merely the external worship of other religions. No, part of idolatry is when we begin depending upon someone else rather than God. That's why God here describes himself as a rock. You may say that you believe in one true God, but is he also your rock on which you depend and rest upon exclusively? Does your life show that God is the only rock on which you are building your life upon? That's a question of idolatry. That's a question of whether or not we believe whether or not there's one and only one true God. I love how one of the commentators said, idolatry is the worst sin of all 
because it moves God to the periphery of our lives and puts something else in His place. Chameleon-like, it constantly disguises itself so that we are scarcely aware of its presence, even when we are most in the grip of it. Greed, Paul tells us, is idolatry because it turns us away from God toward things and makes the pursuit of them the passion of our lives. Friends, don't be satisfied in your mind by the thought that you believe that there's only one true God. Just because you believe that doesn't mean that you are protected from the traps of idolatry. Ask yourself, is he your rock? Is he your rock? Is he the one you depend upon above all things? That is a picture of the true God. The second point that we see God doing in this passage uh, is that to show that idolatry is foolish and dangerous. Show that idolatry is foolish and dangerous. The second uh, part of our text unpacks the process and the effects of idolatry. God paints here a step-by-step process, a step-by-step picture of how idol makers in ancient times went about making their idols. Now, you might think, as we work this part of the text, you might think, oh, we, we have so evolved from that practice. We, we no longer do that today. We are more reasonable people. We know that such, such manufacturing of idols is totally, totally foolish. Well, friends, it may, be, it may be foolish to do it the exact same way as people have done it in antiquity. We may not do it with stone. We may not do it with wood. But this text and the process we have here exposes why idolatry is foolish and why idolatry is dangerous. So let's look at each of these. Why is idolatry foolish? And then we'll, we'll look at why is idolatry dangerous. Idolatry is foolish because it will not profit us. Idolatry is foolish because it will not profit us. Look at verse 9. All who fashion idols are nothing. And the things they delight in do not profit. The things that idolaters delight in do not profit. Quite the opposite. Instead of bringing us benefits... Idolatry will bring its worshipers to shame. Notice the word shame appearing three times in verses 9 through 11. God warns his people so they know ahead of time. Idolatry does not deliver what it promises. Idolatry promises much. Much delight. Much safety. Much comfort. And it leaves people broken in despair. And in shame. Friends, idolatry will leave us empty and disappointed and ashamed. How different God is when He exposes our idols, even though that process is painful, even though that process is, is shameful, God replenishes us with Himself. And instead of shame, instead of the shame of idolatry, 
God becomes a rock for those who turn to Him. Idolatry is foolish because it will not profit us. <laughs> Another reason why idolatry is foolish is because idols are man-made. Look at verse 12, the description of how our idols are made. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with his hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. God shows here that idols would not exist apart from people making them. Making idols requires people's energy and power and time. And idols do not replenish the energy of those who make them. For example, the reason why money is a powerful idol is because we people attach great value to it. Have you ever noticed if you were to have a $100 bill, and you pulled it out of your pocket, and you showed it to your puppy at home? Would your dog be excited about the $100 bill? No. Why not? Because that little piece of money means nothing to your dog. The only reason money has power is because we people ascribe it, that power to it. Because we find it valuable. Because we know what it can do if we use it the right way. The only reason the idol of money has power is because we give it power. We make it to be powerful. Apart from human beings creating idols, idols would not exist. They would have no power over us. But if those who make power, uh, idols, get tired and hungry, as we regularly do, our idols cannot be better than the people who make them. So idolatry is foolish because idols have their origins in people and we humans are limited and fragile. Idolatry is, is foolish because it is made, because idols are made by people. Another explanation why idolatry is foolish is because we make idols of what is created. We make idols of what is created. Look at verse 14. This craftsman in our story, he cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree, or an oak, and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and worms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. And he also makes a god and worships it. Now, what's wrong with this picture? Man makes an idol from that which is created and from that which can perish. The material from which man makes idols is not self-existent. It is part of creation. In our text, the craftsman uses a tree. A tree 
which is dependent upon rain to grow it. Think about it. A tree that is dependent upon drops of water falling from the sky. I mean, can you, can you pick up the irony that this author is trying to bring here? We make an idol of that which is dependent on drops of water to grow. Today, we don't depend on trees for making idols. Today, we're more sophisticated. We can make a god out of our family. Now, our family is a good thing, just as a tree is a good thing in and of itself. But families are also places of pain and brokenness. Making a god of our families is a very foolish idea. Same can be said about relationships. Students and young adults, as you approach a season of life when you are looking for a significant other as a potential partner for marriage, it will be very easy for you. It will be very easy and tempting to make that significant other to take the place of God in your life. How could that happen, you may ask? Well, at least in two ways that I can point you to, although there's a lot more. First of all, by turning their situations, there might be relationships in which turning away from God will, for the sake of the relationship will be more luring and pleasant. It may mean for you to not worry about whether or not your future spouse will be a Christian or is a Christian. And it'll be more easy for you to, to, to start walking at a more distant from God just for the sake of moving on into a relationship that does not honor God. That significant other might be a Christian, but the way you think about that person, the way you wrap your identity, the way you wrap your goals, the way you wrap your dreams, and the way you put your dependence upon that person might shift that person in your heart. To take the place of God. So that instead of allowing God and letting God be the rock of your life, you are making that relationship to be the rock of your life. Friends, that significant other will eventually die. Don't make a God of that which one day will be buried in a grave. Don't trade God for that which is created. Whether it is another person, a man-made treasure, or other man-made pursuits. Idolatry is foolish, not only because idols are dependent upon us to make them, but idolatry is foolish because we make idols of that which is created and limited and which one day will perish. Another reason why idolatry is foolish is because we expect idols to give us only what God alone can give us. Reason, another reason why idolatry is foolish is because we expect idols to give us what God alone can give us. Look at verses 17 and, uh, 16 and 17. This craftsman in our story says, half of it, half of the wood, he burns in the fire. Over the half, 
he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. He also worms himself and says, Ah, I am worm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it, and the rest of it, he makes an idol, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, you are my God. Now again, we might feel like we have evolved from this particular practice in this crass way. We might feel that we have evolved from such unreasonable practices, but don't get stuck in the details of this story. Notice the pattern, the pattern of idolatry that's going on here. What this worshiper is doing after cutting the idol out of the wood, he attaches to this piece of wood divine hopes, hopes for security, hopes for comfort, hopes for rescue. Today, we don't look at a piece of wood and ask the wood to deliver us. But how often do you look at your bank account and consider it as your security, as your safety net for deliverance? Do you look at your insurance? Do you look at your achievements? Do you look at, your, at your, what you are able to acquire or to be as a safety net for not getting in trouble? This worshiper ascribes to a piece of wood a hope that only God can ultimately fulfill. Yet this worshiper attributes a responsibility and a hope that that piece of wood can never accomplish. And friends, we oftentimes do the same with other things in our lives. God blesses us with material things, with people, with relationships, with dreams, with aspirations. All of those can be wonderful things, can be good things. And when used appropriately, they can be delightful and, co- and, and bring us a, a degree of comfort. But we can never put our hopes, we can never ask of those things to do and be what God alone can do and be for us. We can never substitute those things for God. Some of us may not make a God out of other things or other people or out of money. We know those things are not to be so, but we make a God of ourselves. And we like to live as if we are gods. We need no one else but ourselves. We look to ourselves as being self-reliant, self-rescuers. Self-worship, my dear friends, is another form of idolatry. We think that we can be God to ourselves or to other people. Idolatry is foolish. Because we attach God's role to a created being. Whether it's others or ourselves. These are the reasons why idolatry is foolish. If that's all, if that's all about idolatry, we might say, so what? We'll risk, we'll risk doing some foolish things in life. After all, um, we'll learn from it and we move on. But the Bible tells us idolatry is not only foolish, it's dangerous. God exposes idolatry not simply as being foolish, but as being dangerous. Why is idolatry dangerous? In this passage, look at a few reasons why idolatry is dangerous. Idolatry is dangerous because it affects our heart's ability to see and understand reality clearly. Idolatry is dangerous because it affects our heart's ability to see 
and to understand reality clearly. Verse 18, they know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. In verse 20, we're told that idolatry is caused by a deluded heart. Look at verse 20. He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. In other words, when we worship idols, it is a sign that something is wrong with our hearts. And that, that deluded heart continues to malfunction, continue to misfire. We don't see reality clearly. Idolatry is dangerous because it affects the very control center of our lives, our hearts. It affects our reasoning. It affects the choices that we make. Um, John Calvin, the great reformer, said, our hearts are a factory of idols. In other words, we cannot blame the idols for being idolaters. The reason why we are idolaters is because our hearts malfunction and make idols of what God created. Our hearts are misfiring going in the wrong direction. Idolatry is dangerous because it shows that our hearts are not working properly. Another reason why idolatry is dangerous is because idolatry is an abomination. Verse 19, the craftsman wants to make an idol out of a piece of wood. But notice how he describes such an idol. The Bible describes it an abomination. Look at verse 19. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Friends, one of the reasons why we may feel careless or negligent about our idols is perhaps because we have forgotten that idols are an abomination to God. It abhors God. I wonder if you see idols and idolatry as an abomination. A last reason why idolatry is dangerous, and perhaps this caps it together, is because we cannot free ourselves from it. Idolatry is dangerous because we cannot free ourselves from it. Look at verse 20. He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself. Or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? The reason why idolatry is dangerous is because idolatry will not leave the idolater to break free. The idolater does not have the capacity by himself or in his own power to understand the lie that he is believing. Idolaters are hopeless in freeing themselves from their idolatry. An idolatry does not control his idol. Oh, how often, dear friends, we believe that we can manage our idols. We may know that we have an idol, and we just say, we, we got a hand over it. We know how to put the proper boundaries behind, around it. Oh, friends, that is part of the delusion of an idolater. He thinks he's in control of his idol. He thinks he can get rid of it when he wants that to happen. And the Bible says, no. No, no, no. It's the other way around. The idol controls the idolater. And this is what makes idolatry not only foolish but dangerous. That which we create, the idol which we make, becomes our captor. 
it holds us captive. Idolatry does not let its worshipers be free because they don't have the internal power to see their own lies in which they are living in. So is there any hope for those trapped in idolatry? Is there any hope for those who are hopeless in idolatry? And the answer is yes, there is hope. But not because there's power in the idolater, not because there's power in those who worship idols. There's hope, but that hope lies in someone outside of the idolater, in someone outside of the idolatry, and that someone is the Lord. The third point that we see in our passage, the third point that we see in our text, is that God calls His people to return to Him. Look at verses 21 to the end. In verse 21, God calls His people to return to Him. What is involved in this return? In verse 21, God calls His people to remember that God formed His people. First of all, it's a call of remembering who formed who. Earlier, idolaters were described as forming the idols. And God calls His people to remember, I formed you. I made you. It's not about you making idols. It's about me making you. This is a huge contrast. The true God does not need people to form God, to think of God in a particular way. The true God forms His people. The true God is not dependent upon His people, but His people are dependent upon their God to rescue them. In verse 22, God gives another great news. He says, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Now, this is astonishing news, oh dear friends. God takes the initiative in this passage. He takes the initiative to clean out, to put away the sin of His people. And what's amazing, God has determined to do so before He calls His people to repent. I love how one of the commentators said, God's grace has not waited for Israel's repentance. It is this great news that enables God's people to return to the Lord. They can return to the Lord because God has taken the initiative to blot out their sins. Because God has taken the initiative to blot out their sins. Now He calls His people to return to Him. In verse 22, return to me. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Now, tonight, by God's grace, when we will gather in the evening service, um, Pastor Taylor will speak to us more about what repentance looks like. I'd love for you to be there tonight. But even now, I invite you to see that God is calling His people right now to repent, to turn to the Lord. He's calling those who have fallen into idolatry to ask God to save them. To rescue them. Now, God could have left His people to the blindness and to the bondage of their own idolatry. To a bondage that they could not have saved themselves from. But the Lord is the one who worked a great salvation. A great redemption for His people. And this redemption God executed before He calls them to repentance. This text shows us that God's salvation is not conditioned by our repentance. Rather, our repentance is the fruit of God's salvation. We don't repent so we cause our salvation. No. 
We repent because we come to realize and embrace the truth and trust and believe that God has acted to save us. Friend, the call to God, the call to respond to God, the call to be saved is a call to return from idols. I love how the Apostle Paul describes the people of Thessalonica. When they came to the Lord, Paul says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Becoming a Christian involves nothing else than turning from your idols to God. But realize that even the call to repent, even the act of repenting, is not what causes our salvation. It's the fruit. It's the manifestation that we have come to understand and believe and trust what God says about saving us through His Son, Jesus Christ. Oh, friend, if you've never turned to God, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you. Do it right now. Ask God to save you from your idols. You cannot save yourself from your idols. You cannot be a self-rescuer from your troubles. Ask the Lord to be the rock. Ask the Lord to be your redeemer. Friends, if you'd like to know more about what that looks like, I or Pastor Taylor or Pastor Ryan or any member in this congregation would love to talk to you more after the service. Return to God, and when you realize that He is receiving you as one whom He has already redeemed, you, you will be saved. In verse 23, God calls upon creation to sing. He calls the heavens to sing. He calls the mountains to sing. He calls the forest to sing. He calls every tree to sing. Why would God call every tree to sing? Why would every tree be singled out in this passage as singing to God praises? You know what? Because earlier, the tree was a very product from which mankind made idols. And here's God saying, every part of creation will one day worship me. Why would you make an idol of that which will actually worship me, which is not a God? All creation will worship the Lord. It's called to worship the Lord. Why? Because God says, I have redeemed my people. Now, how has God redeemed his people? In this chapter, there is a, ma a physical manifestation of that redemption, a political manifestation of that redemption, in the fact that God will bring his people out of exile in Babylon. And the agent God will use to make that redemption real, actual, is Cyrus. But even this redemption at the end of the chapter points to another redemption that God introduces in chapter 53. Another servant who will truly redeem God's people, not only from captivity in Babylon, but from their sins, from their, from their bondage to sin and darkness and blindness. It is a servant of the Lord in Isaiah 53. Oh, dear friends, God promises to give us a servant, to give us a means by which He will redeem us. Friends, it is impossible. It is impossible for us to respond well to God, recognizing what He does to save His people without praising Him. That's why all creation is called to praise the Lord when they hear of God's plans to rescue and to redeem His people.
I love how one commentator said, it's impossible for idolatry to get a foothold in a joyful and praising heart. For those of us who have turned away from idols to worship the living and true God, one way to protect our hearts from idolatry, from falling into idolatry, is to cultivate in our hearts an attitude of constant praise and adoration to God. It is when our hearts fail to live with deep gratitude to God, when we fail to honor Him in our hearts and praise Him in the quiet corners of our hearts, then our hearts are more easily susceptible to fall into idolatry because we begin honoring other people, dreams, possessions, part of creation, as more worthy of our attention. When we fail to give constant praise to God, we begin shifting our praise and adoration to some other part of His creation. This morning, we looked at the theme of idolatry and at how God exposes idolatry for what it is. It's foolish and it's dangerous. So let's examine our own hearts to see if we cherish the Lord as the only rock on which we can truly depend upon above all things. Friends, don't be satisfied with merely having a good knowledge about God. Merely your head knowledge about God being the only true God will not do it. Does your heart depend upon Him as if He's the only rock and there's no other? Does your heart depend upon, upon Him in your marriage, in your trials, in your dreams, in your aspirations, in your relationships? Remember also that the true God forms His people. It is His initiative to call His people out of their idolatry to return to Him, for He alone is able to save us out of our idolatry. Friends, there is no other God to depend upon besides God. Idolatry is foolish and dangerous, and God calls His people to return to Him, for God has provided a means of salvation before we could ever respond to Him. Let's close in prayer. Father, would you open our eyes widely and give us a clear vision of your redemption and your salvation, of your greatness, of your awe. Of your awe. Oh, help us, O oh Lord, to be rescued from any lures of idolatry that our hearts and our minds may be lured by. Oh Lord, if there's any here among us this morning who are still captive to idols, who are still blinded by their sin, Lord, we pray, we ask that you would enable them to see your love, your power to rescue and redeem. Would you, oh Lord, open the eyes of the blind? Would you open our eyes to see your great love? And may we May we turn to you with hearts full of gratitude and joy to the one who gave us his only begotten son so that we might be saved. In the name of Christ we pray.